didn't expect to talk that long on trash. But if you guys were short on trash talk, you have now had your fill, I'm sure. So yes, we're, the we're land, they've got their landfill. <laughs> their landfill on trash talk. Once more unto the breach, dear friend. Else close the wall up with our English dead. Uh, welcome back to a second hour of the Personal Wealth Coach with Jake and Jeff McClure. And I suddenly stopped hearing your voice completely. Can you say something else to me, Jeff? Say something. All right. Something. We got you back. Ladies and gentlemen, Jeff McClure has returned. Ta-da. 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 I'm back. Okay. I think you need an Austrian accent to say that properly. I'm back. I'm back. Yeah. I'm back. Hey, a couple of things I wanted to talk about. One is uh, Kiplinger is forecasting a 15% rise in business investment this year. And specifically, uh, capital spending on equipment. And a lot of that's going into robots, which is a good sign. We normally see this kind of spending matter of fact the last time we saw a 15 percent rise in a single year i think it was in 2009 we see this at the bottom of recessions when companies realize the bottom is here and it's time to reinvest it's time to be prepared to go into the expansion and that's an indication the recession is over but we're seeing it is we're certainly not having a recession and we're seeing a lot of business investment in robotics and computers and new equipment to make their production more efficient uh, I don't know what's going on in restaurants. I know that if I were going to make a forecast in the economy, by the way, I would say that uh, you need to get your restaurant reservations in earlier because the masking restriction dropping yeah. is going to make a lot of people come out that didn't come out that want to go out to eat that haven't been out to eat in a long time. Yeah, we're already, um, it's already being seen. I Just looking at the traffic on the highway yesterday, it was it was flowing. People are back and, and moving back out. It's been kind of slow trickle getting out back get out back you see there's a restaurant reference in in my slip of the tongue in there somewhere people are heading out to do things i'm hearing clients planning vacations again it looks it looks like we're actually going to do this guys there's another thing i wanted to talk about despite the fact that the economy is growing great guns and i think it's going to continue to go quite well uh it's going to have bumps along the way and we've now been a year without a recession without a correction I know that sounds without a correction. Yeah, the the market has not dropped ten percent since we. <laughs> it was a big one last time, though. Yeah, it was a big one last time, and we're not. I don't think we're ready for one yet. But know that corrections come along even when the economy is expanding. Uh, during the ten years that we saw the continuous economic expansion after two thousand nine, we had a number of corrections in the market. They weren't serious. But they were scary and they scared the heck out of a lot of people. So the question I have to ask, I want you to ask yourself if you're if you have an investment portfolio, is are you ready for one? What's your plan? Have a plan for what happens. The corrections when the market goes down 20%, 10%, 10% or 20%. 10%. Bear market's 20%. Yeah, 10%. We in and the NASDAQ in this recent plunge, very, very short plunge that occurred on Wednesday, almost got down to the bear market. Almost got down to correction level. It's going to happen one of these days. It may not be for quite a while. It may not be for a couple of years, but it's going to happen. So the trick is to plan for it before it happens, well before it happens, and say, okay, what happens? What am I going to do if the market drops 20% or 10%? Or when. When is a better word. 
because we just assume yeah. it's going to happen. That's a better way of planning. What do we do when this happens? Because things are going okay. great. Doesn't mean they're not, but you always plan like for when they're not. It's kind of like if you lived in California and you need to plan for earthquakes, or if you lived along the coast, Gulf Coast, you plan for hurricanes. You have a plan. You have your your plan, preferably written out. You have your you have the reserves that you need. So if you're taking money out of a portfolio to live on in retirement, for example, what are you going to take the money? Where are you going to take the money from during a correction? Are you going to continue to take it out of your equity portfolio? Or are you going to take it out of savings? Do you have enough savings to last you for 18 months? That's a good number, by the way, uh, because the longest correction that we've seen recently in the past, oh, I guess 20 or 30 years is 18 months. And they do last that long. And of course, 2000, if it all depends on where you invested to, if you're widely diversified in your portfolio, your correction will not be as severe as if you are rested, if you're hundred percent in the S and P 500 or if you're in high growth stocks or something, but you just need to be aware of the fact that they do come. Do I think we're going to get one in the immediate future? I can't think of any reason we would, but then again, when corrections come, they come irrationally, they come suddenly and they come obviously without warning and they can be very severe and they sometimes are over very quickly, but still you need to prepare yourself mentally and have your reserve set up so that when the correct, when not if the correction comes, you'll be ready to weather it and keep on sailing through it and come out on the other end. And by the way, if you can't handle a 50% drop in the market, now I know that 50% drop in the market sounds ridiculous at this point, but Let we just had one a year ago. We we had a 50% drop in the market a year ago. People say, that's ridiculous, 50%. Why would it ever? Because it does that occasionally. And we had, a, we had one in 2007 through 2009. We had one in 2000 through 2002. And eventually we'll have another one. And you got to have a plan for that too. It's going to happen one day. And there's no way of predicting it. There's no way of market timing. There's no way of getting out at the right time. And if so you, what is your plan? If you had gotten out in the year 2000, just before the drop, the other side of it is, when do you get back in? Because if you right. got out, maybe you got out at the top, but if you waited too long to get back in, you missed out on all the gains that came up before the Great Recession and then the gains that came after the Great Recession. Timing is reading, hard. I've been reading stories about people who panicked in this last one. They actually got out when when the pan, when the pandemic first started, but they waited too long to get back in, and they wound up losing an awful lot of money. Yeah, I've spoken to people about that specifically about that in in the last several weeks. Uh, and what I get out of this, and this, I think I even mentioned this last week, about twenty percent of the trade volume right now on on the exchanges is for retail investors this is like the people that are doing their own trading online or on their apps and it's typically much much lower than that like by a factor of 75 percent lower than that or more on a normal time period that sort of environment we saw that take place when e-trade first came out and the dot-com bubble was going and say hey you can trade online now and, and the whole concept of day trading as a thing that somebody did that wasn't a stockbroker became more mainstream. And then we saw the big crash. And I talked to people at the time. I'm hearing the same thing today that I heard then, which is I'm not getting back into the market. It's rigged. I lost 80% of what I put in. 
I never want to touch that again. And I asked him, well, what were you doing? Well, I was shorting such and such a position. And I was like, what? That's a pretty complicated gambling position. Are you sure that that's a good place to be? Well, obviously it wasn't. Somehow they think that's what the market is now because that's what they were exposed to. And it's kind of like, I don't want to go into business because when I went to Vegas, I lost a lot of money. So I never want to go into business again. And I go, wait a minute. What business were you doing in Vegas? Well, I was gambling. You were trying to be a full-time gambler? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I thought I would go into business for myself, and I never want to go into business for myself again because I lost all my money in Vegas. What I would say to them at the beginning is usually ignored. Probably not a good idea if you're not a full-time professional gambler and haven't been doing this for years to try to pit yourself against the full-time professional gamblers who have, who have a consistent track record of making money for themselves. The same is true in the stock market. If you're getting into the stock market, especially when things are going well in the stock market, and to put it lightly, we're, it's going well right now, don't jump to the most aggressive positions as soon as you get in there, or it's going to leave a very bad taste in your mouth eventually. You might get lucky, but if you do, that's why it's called lucky. It's, there's fewer, a lot fewer people that get lucky than that don't. If you have a good plan to start a business... If you have a good plan to start a portfolio, it's in the same mindset. You don't say, I'm going to sell my house and get another mortgage and I'm going to bet it all on this one thing. That's not good. That's not a good idea. That's really not a good idea. No matter how good that one thing might be, the likelihood of failure goes way up and the risk that you're taking to do it goes way up. So when you fail, it's a lot more painful. And if you're listening to me right now and you've just started getting into margin investing and you're doing option trades, you're doing short sales or, 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 or any of that stuff and you've never done it before, you need to really, really know what you're doing. Get the research books out there and I don't mean study it for a couple of days on Google and then start investing. I mean... Take some time before you do it. If you heard of anybody doing this with physical assets, you would say you're insane. These virtual assets of ownership in the stock market are physical assets. You should just think of them that way. So take the time to really get up on what you're doing and start with something that's not way out there like margin investing or or short selling, or naked short selling, which is a combination of both margin investing and not. It's dangerous. There's no limit to the amount you can lose. It doesn't stop with the amount you invest. Uh, What I would tell people is if you're new to investing for yourself, stick to items that you can only lose as much as you put into it. As soon as you lose that safety net and now suddenly there's no limit to the amount you lose, you have gone into the shark tank and you have paper cuts on. So don't do that unless you understand sharks. There's a principle in investing, and I know that it's not very popular among some people, but it's still a principle that works. And that is you buy things that create utility and you buy a lot of them. And you buy them across a broad spectrum of different asset classes. Asset classes mean size of company, valuations of companies, locations of companies, and you get very well diversified. Helps tremendously. But the important thing is, for instance, if you're investing in one of our favorite asset classes, mid-cap value, 
mid-cap value companies are mid-sized companies that are not really too widely known in many cases. Their stock price is based on the valuation of the underlying assets rather than hopeful growth into the future. And they're kind of boring. But that's the kind of thing that, that that's how Warren Buffett got his money. That's how John Templeton got his money. You buy into smaller, not small, but smaller stocks that, that have a potential to grow once the market recognizes the valuation of the company. That's a very boring way to get rich slowly. Yeah. Get rich quick. Get rich quick generally equals get poor quick. Yeah. And the the last hour at the end of our of the hour, we had the question about cryptocurrency. And unfortunately, the, the last part of the question was what what purpose does it serve in the economy? And I said right now a big chunk of it is the black market. Uh, a big chunk of it is being able to move around overseas and do and not have the conversion fees and so on. There are other good uses uses for cryptocurrencies, little microtransactions for things and getting paid for doing things and uh, it, just like any currency. The difficulty lies in that people think it's anonymous and they start doing legitimate normal citizens start thinking because it's anonymous that they don't have to report it. And this is the deal. A lot of people have made a lot of money and a lot of people have lost a lot of money. But the IRS wants to get paid its taxes on the gains you've made. And they will get those taxes at some point. They will, there is now a budget to go with finding who's making gains. And they're going to be requiring the coin exchanges to send you a 1099, things like that, things like what would happen at any other commodity or investment-related area. If you've got a big enough gain, the IRS is maybe going to know about it before you do. So just be aware of that. This is not the Wild West anymore. It's slightly less wild, but there's still a lot of crime. The other thing is when you get your gain and you convert, you don't have your gain until you convert it into dollars. And when you convert it into dollars, it's got to go someplace. And if it goes into your bank, and it's not going to go in. You're not going to get cash. They're not going to send you cash in the mail from selling a crypto coin. Well, they might. That would be a little strange, but they might do it. I don't. I don't think that's going to happen. But you'd have trouble spending it anyway. The point is, the banks get this sudden influx of cash into your account. They report it to the IRS, and when they sooner, and if you get audited at that point, it can be very, 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 very unpleasant. Like Jake said, the smart thing to do is if you're trading in cryptocurrencies. Recognize that there are no capital gains on cryptocurrencies, by the way. They're collectibles. They're coins. So you have to pay for them as regular income. And secondly, declare them on your income taxes. Be very scrupulous about that. Remember, it was even uh, Al Capone finally got nailed, not for all of his other criminal activities, killing people, sex trafficking, drugs, murder, and all the things that he did. He got nailed for income tax evasion. Don't be, don't go down that same road. Yeah. Uh, and I, and I think that's, that is the big thing is that people don't recognize number one, if you own a cryptocurrency, the tax rate is the same as the income tax rate. Uh, if it's short term and if it's long term, it depends on how you're holding the cryptocurrency. So things can get really complicated there. If you hold for more than one year, sometimes the capital gains rate applies and sometimes it doesn't. 
So you need to be aware when you're doing this, the one person, the one entity you really don't want to shortchange in your life is the IRS. I'm not a big, I don't love the IRS. I realize they serve their purpose. Um, and, and I recognize that they have to be the bad guys because otherwise people will just not pay taxes. But they really are the bad guys if you're not paying taxes. So you don't want them knocking on your door. You really, really don't. I mean, you said it. Capone wasn't grabbed for all of his prohibition violations and murder. He was grabbed for tax evasion. And it's pretty severe. And, and if, if you don't think so, next time you're having coffee with a friend, bring up tax evasion in the conversation. And what you'll find is that the vast majority of Americans have a pretty negative opinion of it. We, for the most part, pay our taxes correctly in the United States. That's weird because, you know, it's a patriotic thing. And Democrats and Republicans alike pay their taxes. This is fascinating. So if you're not paying your taxes or you're trying to avoid them, you're going to find not a lot of sympathy out there for you. As much as the IRS is a bad you know, entity, they're the big boogeyman, and we're all afraid of them, you're not going to get sympathy from us if you're honestly trying to avoid, or dishonestly, trying to avoid taxes. Speaking of taxes, there's been a proposal from the Biden administration. Uh, it hasn't gotten through Congress, and Congress is going to probably water it down pretty strongly to increase taxes. Yeah. Is it going to affect you? Well, I've looked at it very carefully and come to the conclusion that most of our listeners probably will not be affected by it. Yeah. A couple of things out there. One, basically, if you're making more than a million dollars a year income, then I would be concerned. Yeah. If you're making more than 400000 a year, expect to see some tax changes that aren't written anywhere yet. If you've got gains of more than a million dollars in capital gains, expect there to be a tax increase. And this is something, there's ways around this, by the way, folks. This is something we've been telling people to do for years, but it becomes much more important now. If you're in the process of selling a business, you should time the sale of your business to the end of the year and the beginning of the following year so that you can get two payments instead of one in two different tax years. It's entirely possible to get your payment for the business over a three-year period just as well. Right. So if, you're, if you have a large capital gain that you're going to realize and it's going to put you over the million-dollar mark, God bless you first. Yeah, you did um, it. This, this is the American dream. You've got a big purchase that you got up to this level. You've got a million dollars plus in gains. Congratulations. Now you got to structure it right. But, but discuss, take, if, you, if you're selling a business that's going to be more than a million dollars in gains, then you need to consult with a tax attorney. And really a good one. Make sure that you spread it out and make sure you do it correctly. Make sure you get the contracts all put together correctly. And, and that doesn't um, mean taking on all the risk and saying that the buyer is going to give me three installment payments. It means setting up an escrow account that releases based on contractual obligations on both sides. Yeah. And, and that can happen over multi-year. Yeah. You need an attorney to do that. And it needs to be done properly. Once you start talking about a million dollars and above, in anything, then you need to really get with somebody that's highly professional. The other thing is he's made a proposal to, to eliminate the step up in value at death. Step up in cost basis, yeah. Step up in cost basis at death on on estates where there's more than a million dollar gain. Now, by the way, that 
would be $2 million for a couple. And actually, if you threw in a house, it's $2,250,000. So it's one of those things that, yeah, again, once you go over the million-dollar line, things start to change. And again, it, it's, if it's, it hasn't passed through Congress yet, uh, it's going to take, it's going to be watered down some before it goes through Congress, but it's going to happen. The reason I say that is we have some huge deficits that need to be dealt with. We need to do infrastructure and we need to do some serious investing in our economy. The government needs to do some serious investing in our economy. Things are wearing out. Things need to be done that will make our economy more productive and produce more tax money down the road. Things that literally will produce more money coming back over the next 20 years in taxes than we pay for it. But still, somewhere we've got to get to a higher tax position. And I know that people don't, you may not think so if you just did your taxes, but the United States, in the United States, we have of all the developed countries in the world, the lowest tax structure. Well, taxation on individuals in the United States is the least of any nation on the planet that's the developed nation. When, when you count, yeah. when you count all the tax different, all the different methods of taxation and add yeah. them together, local sales, ad valorem, that's the property taxes, all the stuff, you add them all together and we look at the overall tax rate and it's pretty low for, an, for, a, for a first world nation. It is one of the lowest out there. And we expect to maintain our defense structure. We expect to do a lot of things and we don't want to run deficits up into the absolute stratosphere. That means that we either have to cut way back someplace, which we, nobody wants to do, nobody will agree to do, or we need to raise taxes. And factually, if you make more than a million, if you have more than a million dollars in gains, or if you have more than a million dollars of income, it's going to be pretty impressive. If you have over $400,000 of income as a couple, you're going to see some increases, but the million-dollar mark is where the capital gains kick in, and that's going to be a big issue if you make more than a million dollars in capital gains in a year. Yeah, so structuring how you're selling things from your assets is important. Uh, there's something called tax lot sales. If you don't know what that is and you have a portfolio approaching that, then you probably need to call us off the air and we can talk about that. There's a, a lot of ways of approaching your sales to capture the right kinds of gains and to do it in a controlled fashion. It's important that you do the same kind of planning here as the professionals do. Because even though this is maybe a one-time event in your life, and this is the thing that I think, this is why we're focusing on this, is that the danger in this tax change and these tax changes are for the people that have been working their entire life in a business or they have a property that has been in the family a long time and they go to sell it. You need to put some planning around this now. You've always been supposed to, but the consequences of not planning for it haven't been as severe as they're about to be. Almost any way we look, it's going to require more planning. Uh, and that's, man, I know this is coming from someone whose whole business is wrapped around planning for this sort of thing. But I really, really wish we could simplify our system so that it didn't require this, that there was some method of saying, hey, this is a one-time sale. Can we spread this over the next six years? Rather than somebody that makes this every year, you know, if you're making it every year, it doesn't matter if you spread it over six years because it's going to be the same every six for the whole six-year period. It's still going to be high. If you've got somebody that's been working in a business their whole life and they're finally ready to quit, they're finally ready to sell the business to somebody else, 
and they make one or two million dollars on that and that's supposed to help them maintain their lifestyle for the rest of their life and they get hit with taxes up near 45 percent on those gains that's that's getting to the point where now you're not possibly it's possibly not going to be able to support your lifestyle forever so spending the time to make the plan and spending a couple of thousand dollars to set up the plan with an escrow type purchase with contractual contractual obligations and then more thousands of dollars on the attorney i know that's expensive but it's a lot less expensive than putting yourself in the top 1% of earners for a year and having the entire focus of the government look at you as if you've been wealthy like this forever. There. I think I have come to the end of that. You had a whole bunch of other stuff you wanted to talk about as well, though, you told me. Well, those two those two were the big things. Uh, I think there's a shift going on in the economy that I mentioned this, or we mentioned it in the newsletter, that the uh, that retail sales were flat this month compared to last month, but they drove, they jumped 10.7% last month. I think what we're going to see is some of the buying of stuff is going to slack off, which is going to reduce the price increases that we're seeing on, on products that you can actually buy and lay your hands on. I think we're going to spend a lot more money spent on services. Yeah. Uh, the restaurants are already getting overloaded. I went to a couple of them uh, recently, particularly with the masking requirement dropped. I think we're going to see, restaurants really surge up again movie theaters surge up again and and Um, we've been talking about all the cash still sitting in people's bank accounts and something we haven't talked about is credit card levels and record lows yeah um we're at a point where i never expected to see it in my career the household cash to debt ratio right now is one to one it's it's like 97 percent, which is the same round just a little bit and you've got the same amount of short-term debt as we have short-term savings that is absolutely amazing and at the uh, right before the great recession there was twice as much short-term debt as cash in people's accounts they had two times as much in credit cards as they did in the bank and that's a smashingly large difference in uh in a what is that, 14 years now, to go from two to one to one to one in that time period. And a huge chunk of that, about 20% of the difference, took place in one year where people were paying down their credit cards. The credit card companies are really scared right now because all their revenue is going away because people are paying off their debt. So I kind of expect people to be using their credit cards too. Although hopefully people have gotten to the place where they're where they are, um, what's a good way of saying this, where their habits have shifted so that they were paying off their credit cards as fast as they're using them. I think there has been a fundamental shift in, in, in expectations and habits and when it comes to money. I think the shock of the pandemic is something that's going to scar people for a long time, and I think it's going to be something that uh, stays with them and they continue to save. Right. Agreed. Agreed. I think this... The, the pandemic has been enough of a shift that a lot of people are going to refer back to it. And my grandparents had the Great Depression. And my grandmother was, you know, she had a drawer full of napkins and ketchup packets and salt and pepper, little packets that she got at all these different restaurants, and she would save them. 
because there's times when you don't have them. My we, wife still has them. <laughs> she learned from her mother well. She still gathers when 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 you get the little packets in with uh, takeout food. She keeps them. We never use them. She just keeps them, and then we she keeps shifting them to a bigger jar. Well, I mean, it's wasteful to throw them away. That's right. I understand that completely. I another really hesitate to throw. I, I I hesitate to throw the plastic containers they come in away because yeah. they look like they're usable again. Yeah, and and that's yeah, we're kind of our disposable society right now. We're also relooking at that. There's a there's a lot of people reusing those plastics, and this is an important piece. We've talked about this over the years. China's the number one manufacturer of plastic on the planet, even though they get it from coal rather than from other petroleum products. They're producing all this stuff, and the more we use it, the more profits they make. Versus if we can reuse those items, and a lot of them are very easily reusable, from an economics perspective, it just makes a lot more sense. The whole... But you Go ahead. But you eventually run out of cabinet space to store them. That's true. That's true. And that may be one of those things where you say, hey, I don't know, uh, reusable at restaurants? I don't know. I don't, uh, th- this is, it gets hard. How do we do this? We've, we've developed a system that, how did people used to take takeout in the 1950s? Oh, oh yeah, they didn't. <laughs> Mostly didn't. <laughs> That's right. Paper. Right. I did this yesterday. Yesterday, I went to uh, Johnny's here in Salado, got a hamburger. It was wrapped in paper. It was in a paper bag. I had French fries with it. And the French fries were in a paper, little paper bag, and they were all inside a paper bag. And I think that's a big place where you're going. But it's really hard to order noodles or soup in a paper bag. Well, it just has to be a properly sealed paper bag. Right. Somehow, we have to seal this paper bag with plastic. Well... I don't know. The traditional Chinese takeouts in a little cardboard container. That's true. And I think where we are right now is that the plastic is less expensive than the cardboard. And the worst part about it is those particular containers are not recyclable. Plastic containers. I mean, yeah. you can put them in the recycle bin, but they're just going to go in the landfill. Right. So when we're looking at this, and people, there's people are probably saying, "Why well, did you just go eco on us?" Or we're, we're economists, not ecologists when we talk about this efficiency and money long term and it is more efficient to reuse and recycle so long as the recycling is the right kind a lot of plastic recycling is not efficient monetarily at all Uh, it is stupid And, and that's a hard thing to say hey nope just throw it in the landfill but it costs more and creates more waste to recycle it so choosing how you do this and what you spend your money on, it's all part of the same stuff. This is, this is all, you know, glass recycling and metal recycling are likely to forever be cost effective. They are, the, they are um, the, the right way to recycle. And there's some kinds of plastic that can be recycled. If you look at the recycling little thing on the back or on the bottom or wherever you find it, if it's a two or a five, or a four. Probably can, or, or it probably can be recycled, but if it's anything else, eh, it's going to go in the landfill. Right. Uh, that's, that's where we stand. And we actually talked about this over the last several years. 2017, at the beginning of the year, our major customer for buying used plastic stopped buying it because it was too dirty. And our top quest customer was China. And a cardboard can always be recycled, so can clean paper. Not always. 
if you got it in a Chinese takeout, that's got oil no, on it. You can't no do that. Grease on it. There's no grease or clean cardboard and clean paper. Right. Can be recycled. So that's again where you come back to how do you do takeout without plastic? And that's that's hard. Um, and how do you reuse things? And there's a there's a good thought on that. Uh, if you're a normal customer from a place and they are bringing it to your residence, um, you know, kind of like the growler idea at, at, at these breweries and so on where you get a, or like what used to actually happen in the 1950s, which is if you were getting your milk delivered by the milkman, then your bottle could be collected by the milkman and reused again later. Uh, and why are we talking about this subject? And the reason why I'm talking about this subject specifically is that the green movement's really taken over recycling. When this is truly an economics statement, not a save the planet thing. If it's good for the planet, that's a nice added benefit. But the reality is that the amount of waste that we have is skyrocketing. It's getting more, not less. What we saw during the pandemic was a lot more waste in the landfill than what we were used to. People stopped eating at restaurants. Well, you think, well, there's they're work, they're doing it at home then. So what's the problem? They're going to do their own dishes. Well, they're getting packaged food. So the amount of packaged food, the amount of extra trash that's going out there means that there's going to have to be a lot of extra investment at the public level on larger landfills now so that's what i'm looking at is how we're gonna have to spend a bunch of money on this our the price for what we pay to dump our trash is going to go up if we keep utilizing it it's supply and demand and the demand just jumped so keep that in mind when we're looking. I know this is a weird thing but there's a lot of countries that don't do this well just look at what's happened in italy They've run out of spaces to put their trash. So now they're just dumping it in the Mediterranean. Well, that's not a good idea either because other businesses fail because of that. The fishing industry and the touring tourist industry get really severely smacked. Uh, and that's not even talking about ecological damage, which is also severe. So, I mean, when, when the United States was first founded and people were going out and they, you know, they'd make a cabin they'd build their house, you'd have a dump in your backyard where you would take whatever you weren't using, your, your cans and your glass that you couldn't recycle, and you'd dump it in a pit. And that slowly got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And so we said, all right, we're going to combine all of our pits over in this bigger pit over here. And we're going to have somebody come and collect it from you and put it in the bigger pit. It kind of removed our own responsibility of trying to make sure our pit wasn't so big. You could go through your pit and grab all the cans out of it and all the glass out of it and get it recycled and make some money out of it. Well, we've, we're now paying to recycle because plastic costs money to recycle because it's not cost effective. If we had another line of recycling glass and, and metal, they should be paying us to do recycling. You know, those little nickel deposits, well, they should be more like 25 cents at this point which adds up a lot. Uh, and, I, and I know we're down in a weird path. We don't usually talk about trash. But it's a big part of what we're doing 
and we're doing it wrong right now. We are doing it incorrectly. We changed our model based on having somebody available to buy a bunch of our trash from us. And that person's not there. That country's not there anymore. And we haven't redefined, we still have not redefined how we do it. So there's a fantastic business opportunity for people out there going into recycling right now. If you focus in on the right areas, and I know that's putting more job opportunities out there. We've got more job openings right now than we have people in unemployment. They're just in different places. And I'm throwing out, here's another job opportunity. And it's probably to a bunch of listeners that are in the wrong place. But this is a fantastic opportunity if somebody has the money to invest in it right now. The correct form of cost-effective recycling. And that would kind of decentralize the existing kind of monopolies and duopolies of trash pickup and recycling. All right. Now I've hit Time for commercials. Yeah, we've got to play some commercials. I didn't expect to talk that long on trash. But if you guys were short on trash talk, you have now had your fill, I'm sure. So yes, we're, the we're land, they've got their landfill. <laughs> their landfill on trash talk. Uh we're we're about out of time until we've got commercials played. So we're going to play some commercials. If you'd like to join the conversation, our email addresses are still Jeff at TPWC.com and Jake at TPWC.com. That's Tango, Papa, Whiskey, Charlie. Go ahead and send us something to um, refresh our, our weakened stumbling brains. We're going to play some commercials and we'll be back on the other side of the personal wealth coach. And we're back. Uh, we are back. This is Jake McClure. And on the line with me, I have... Jeff McClure. Uh, we are both bald. We are both here to uh, wax eloquent, or at least uh, uneloquent, on the economy, both macro and micro. I got a little bit of good news. Uh, it's kind of weird good news. Price of imports in the United States over the last 12 months have jumped 10%. Uh, we're using the 12-month again. Uh, they jumped 0.8% or 0.6% in the last month uh and the price but the better but the better news is the price of exports the the average price we're charging to export stuff to the rest of the world has risen 14 percent. basically what that's saying is the stuff we're making in the united states that we're exporting is rising at a faster price than the stuff we're importing what that, that tells you a lot although you have to think about it for a little bit to realize it's telling you a lot. It's telling you that inflation, this burst of inflation that we're getting, it's a very short burst of inflation, is going on all over the planet, and that what we make in the United States is worth more to the rest of the world than what they make is to us. That sounds a little weird, but it's a good sign. It means that the quality, we're still maintained the reputation for quality in the United States, quality manufacturing, quality whatever we export. And you pull the oil out of there, it modifies the prices just a little bit, but still maintains the same relationship. So we're, the United States economy is in good shape and getting better. By the way, when I talked about earlier about robots uh, being bought by companies, one of the biggest uh, uh, uses of that money to buy robots is for cooperative robots. 
That's an uh, collaborative robots. That's what they're called. In other words, it's a robot that works alongside the human being to assist a human being rather than just working by itself. And can learn directly from that human being. That human being can adjust its arm position by hand just by moving it around and then telling it that's where you actually need to be. And that is a really big step in the right direction uh, towards increasing productivity. We've seen some big productivity jumps in American workers recently. I think part of it is coming from that. Part of it is coming from the fact that there's just more work to do and plenty of people and the people who are working are doing it. Um, when are we going to see the, we are still continuing to see this labor shortage, but the labor shortage is at the low end of the, of the spectrum mostly. The upper end labor shortage is, is skilled and that's going to be rough. That's going to be rough to fix. It has nothing to do with unemployment insurance. I mentioned, we mentioned in the newsletter, a lot of truck drivers retired during the pandemic. They did. They just. They were older. The average. If you ever went into a truck stop, you see there's not a lot of young men in there, or or women young, either. Right. Mostly men. Mostly older men. And they got tired of it and decided not to drive trucks for a while. When the when everything slacked off, they decided to start drawing Social Security. And so we're having trouble replacing those truck drivers, which is one of the things that's causing prices to go up. And it's really hard. Truck drivers are having a rough time. They've always had a rough time, but it's hard to get younger people to drive trucks for a very simple reason. A truck driver, all over the road truck driver, drives, works a 16-hour day, gets eight hours of sleep. During that 16-hour day, he's supposed to be driving for 11 hours. And even that got waived for gasoline trucks going up to the Northeast recently. That Think about driving for 11 hours in a given day on working a 16-hour day getting eight hours off and then going back to work again and do that for a week or so away from home or sometimes two weeks away from home before you get back home. It's hard to find people to do that. And then not only is it hard to find people who are willing to do that, the skill level that's required to, mon to maneuver that monster around on the highway and not run over something and not bang it up and not destroy it and back it into the loading dock where it's supposed to be is a pretty high level skill. So the prices are going up for those. They're trying to find more and more of them, but they're having to pay more. The other end of the stick, Walmart is raising its uh, minimum wage in many cases to seventeen dollars. I don't know if you saw that. So is Amazon. Yeah, yeah, I did. And that's overdue. I know that's going to cause that will cause an increase in cost of the things that Walmart sells at some point, but or else a decrease in the profitability of Walmart. But it's overdue because when I was uh, when I was young and unskilled, the minimum wage was a dollar twenty-five. And I could get jobs doing hard work that didn't take a great deal of skill or could be trained on pretty quickly for $1.25 an hour. And inflation has been way over 10 times since then, like about 15 times. And the minimum wage is only up to, what, seven seven fifty? Is that it in most places in the United States? Yeah, seven forty-five. yeah. So the bottom line to it is try paying somebody $15 an hour today to work which Amazon has started as it's is its starting salary across the board now is about the same as minimum minimum wage for a high school kid that was getting paid back in 1967. And so the low end of the wage scale needs to move up a little bit. I'm not saying we necessarily need to raise the minimum wage to $15. I'm just simply saying supply and demand is doing it for us. The other thing that's going to happen with the wages and with the employment, you're going to see a lot of trouble hiring at the low end of the scale. Every place I look, I see help wanted signs, now hiring signs. And I see particularly around restaurants. Bottom line to it is 
restaurants and other places are going to need to be willing to hire people full time, be willing to pay them benefits and be willing to pay them a reasonable wage uh, or people are not going to come to work. But we won't see the real end of that until at least September. September, the unemployment benefits run out from the federal government. Now, states are cutting them off right now. Across A lot of states are cutting off the extra $300 unemployment benefit. We'll see what happens. But I really don't think you're going to see a lot of people come flooding back to work until we get the daycare centers open where the people who are staying home, whether it's husbands or wives, to take care of the kids can have somebody to take care of the kids for them. We're just going to have a problem there. And we also have a terrible mismatch. Across the country, during the pandemic, the labor patterns, have, the job patterns have shifted. we got 81 million jobs open right now, which is an all-time record, by the way. But a lot of those jobs have specific skill sets that they require. For instance, uh, down in Austin, just to give you an example, Tesla is building a plant, and they need a lot of construction workers. Now, they're highly skilled people, and they've had to bring them in from outside of the state in many cases. And that means that to get a lot of work done in the United States today, you need to have somebody who's willing to move to get the work done, and that's hard to do. Fortunately, the ability to sell a house is very easy. The problem is when they get to Austin, what are they going to buy? That's right. And the house, housing is very, very expensive in Austin. And so the places where the jobs are, in many cases, are places where the housing prices are high. These are typical mismatches when we have a major shift in the economy, and we've had some major shifts in the economy in the last year. So it's going to be... We'll probably be two years at least working the bumps out, and we'll still see some bumps beyond that. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, uh, the bottom line to this, and I think it's very important to recognize the bottom line, the economy has got a lot of momentum. It's got a lot of bent up, pent up capital, bent up and pent up capital to spend, both at the corporate level and at the individual level. We've got a lot of things to spend it on. Um, but there's a lot of things in short supply. But the thing is, if supply and demand, demand can change very, very suddenly, but supply changes slowly. For instance, the chip shortage. There are factories being built in quite a number of places and being funded in other places. But it takes two years, typically, to build a chip factory. So expect to see the chip shortage affect cars for another two years until we can bring back up to speed. But supply will eventually come up and meet demand. That's what it does. It's the way a free enterprise system works. So there's really not a lot to worry about, although the newspapers, I'm sure, will find lots of them in the news media and the investment shows will find lots of things for you to worry about. There's really not a lot to worry about in the economy. We've got a lot of momentum in this economy. And by the way, the numerical issues out there, if you look at the Treasury yields and the Treasury um, premium, there is no evidence of inflation in the Treasury market. The treasury market would be trading in much higher yield right now if you really expect to see inflation come along. Yeah. The, the newspapers and the news media are going to be looking for things to be afraid of in the market. That's what sells but, advertisements. It's what sells subscriptions is fear. But at the same time, and this is a kind of a summary at the end of the hour here, we've got about a minute and a half left. It's important to recognize that when the correction comes along, it comes along triggered by something that nobody expected or we wouldn't be a correction. And we will get a correction at some point. Maybe another year. They typically come about once every two years. It's been a year since we had one, so we're on the countdown. So at some point, we're going to get a correction. So have a plan for what happens when the market corrects. Have a plan for what you're going to do and consider the fact that it's going to happen. It's not a matter of it might happen. It's going to happen. And I will say at some point, we'll get another market crash. It may be another decade before, maybe the end of the decade before we get it. We'll get another market crash where it goes down 50% or more. 
just it's one of those things that you have to get used to and have to be ready for. And this has been the personal wealth coach. Yeah. Thank you all for listening. Assuming that you did, there's no really telling if they actually listened. No. Well, if they didn't listen, then they're not hearing you say thank you. Right. Well, if you'd like to contact us off the air, we do give investment advice and portfolio management for people of high net worth. Uh, our phone number off the air locally is? 254-947-1111. You can reach that same line at 1-800-914-7526. That's 800-914-PLAN. You can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com. There you can find podcasts. And if you want to go to podcasts, any of your podcast services will have us on there. You can uh, listen to radio programs going back. You can sign up for our newsletter. You can email us directly at Jeff or Jake at tpwc.com. Until next week, this has been The Personal Wealth Coach.